0: be in Luke chapter 12. The last time Jesus warned about the dangers of hardness of heart and disbelief and how it wouldn't go unpunished in the light of exposure to spiritual truth, whoever is given much, much is required, the Bible says. He also showed how hiding in a religious system will not absolve anyone of their responsibility, their personal responsibility towards God. So verse 1 It says, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's a lot in that one verse. Notice the change in the crowd as time goes on and his ministry becomes more popular. You have hordes of people to the point where they're trampling each other. There's people just... just Clustered together and trying to hear what Jesus is saying to the point where they're harming each other to get to him. Ah, pastor's dream, more people coming into the church. Or is it? We're gonna we're gonna address that a little bit later. But even with the thousands of people who follow Jesus, or even more, where were his supporters during his trials? They were MIA, weren't they? Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. No doubt because of fear of man, but also fickleness of man. There, some of the attitude was, ah, Jesus is done. Yeah, he's arrested. He's, he's, they're going to take him to be executed. It's time to change horses now, right? But a lot of people didn't count on the resurrection. So how important is it to have big numbers in the church? Not very. Let's be honest. Every, most ministries today, that's the focus. Numbers, numbers, numbers. How many people can we, we pack into the church, right? And it's, a lot of times it's self-serving. But it wasn't Jesus' concern, and it's certainly not mine. The way I feel is I just want whoever's here to come and to be edified. The body of believers that are consistent, that you come, that you learn the word of God and that you're discipled and strengthened in his word. That doesn't mean that we don't welcome newcomers. We do. But we don't do flyers or mail outs or uh, any, any funky gadgetry type of thing to get more people in the church. Because the philosophy is that if you're as believers, if you're strengthened in the word of God, you will have an effect. It'll be a spillover. Your neighbors will wonder, you know, what is it about you? Your peace, your knowledge of the word of God, your co-workers and people will naturally come in in a natural fashion. Leaven he speaks about the leaven. Leaven is also yeast. It's an Old Testament picture of sin. Exodus 12 speaks about that regarding the uh, Passover. The leaven or fermentation process equals the way evil spreads. That's the analogy that he's making. Uh, The properties of leaven is a complete permeation of the medium that it's contained in. A very small amount of yeast, a pinch of yeast, will have an incredible effect on a large portion of dough, make it rise. And evil has the same modus operandi. Evil, Evil spreads the same way. But leaven in popular teaching, all you need is a small bit of false doctrine mixed in with generally good teaching, and there's your leaven. It's the same thing with the Pharisees. They had a lot of good teaching. They knew the law of Moses, but they, they had that leaven, that false doctrine that was put in there. I remember a conversation between two Christians. One Christian said, hey, I'm, listening to the, I'm looking to the Christian cable or whatever, some type of TV, and they, they were really enthralled by this one pastor. And they said, this pastor so-and-so has really, really great teaching. I love to listen to him, but he's a little bit off on the Trinity. And the other Christian said, if he's off on the Trinity, he's off on everything else. But now, again, another brother sent me an article about a pastor that was lauded by the media, this new pastor, and he goes against traditional conservative uh, values that Christians kind of follow. But the first thing that stands out is when does the media laud any pastor who speaks the truth about Jesus and hell and the only way to salvation? Not often. As a matter of fact, what they do is they wait for a somebody to get on TV, and and they try to put pressure on them, and when they back off from the truth of the gospel, that's what they'll take, and they'll expound upon that. But it didn't take long to find interesting things about the guy doubting God's omniscience. Well, we're not really even sure that God knows the the end from the beginning. a little bit of leaven in there. Pharisees knew the same. You know, they knew the law, they followed the religious rituals, but they added burdens with Scripture, and it, clouded, it was clouded with tradition. They started adding their own opinion. The Talmuds were starting to be elevated above sacred scripture. Rabbinical commentaries on the word of God, people would rather see that than actually read the word of God. And you know, when, it, when I'm up here, there's scripture and then there's my opinion. And I'm very clear to tell you what, hey, it's just my opinion. But, you know, I can't ever elevate what I believe, maybe not clear in the scripture, I can't elevate that to the same level as sacred scripture. Scripture is above all. Hypocrisy, he speaks about. Hypocrisy, the word comes from the the Greek theater. The word in Greek is upokritos, which was synonymous for the word actor. It meant the same thing. It actually literally meant to answer the word krinomai from under, hupo, and what were you answering from under? A mask. They didn't have all the Steven Spielberg special effects, so they would have props. You know, little props that they would put on stage or a a mask on a stick, you know, to make them look like a different character. So they would answer from under a mask. They were pretending to be somebody who they really weren't. Now, for our religious application, you could say that a hypocrite is a fraud, a liar or a charlatan. Hypocrite. Being a cop for 15 years, I got to tell you, um, it would really hurt if somebody thought that I was a hypocrite or a liar. You know, being a road cop for 15 years, I've been called a lot of things. But if somebody called me a liar or a hypocrite, that would really cut to the heart because of who I am in Christ. That would really bother me. I remember I was behind a woman. Uh, She was driving on Route 130, and she was talking. I could see because I was behind her. She didn't know there was a police car behind her. Talking to the person sitting next to her, having a good old conversation, violating all kinds of traffic laws. She eventually turns onto a small street, and I pull her over. And I asked her, I said um, do you know why I stopped you? Or she says, why did I, why did you stop me? And I explained to her before I was finished. She called, she said to me, you're a liar. And she started yelling at me. I was really taken aback by that. I mean, I can take, you can call me ugly, call me pig you can call me stupid. You could say your mama wears combat boots. I mean, anything but hypocrite or liar, you know, that, that's, Awful, I mean, because I almost want to ask, well, what do you mean? Explain yourself, you know, because that's not me. But anyway, um, there's a sister here. I won't say her name, not to embarrass her, but she actually had a better method for when you get pulled over. As a matter of fact, she told me a few months ago when I talked about how the best way to get out of the ticket is to tell a cop the truth because they hardly ever hear the truth. They hear lies and excuses. So she was uh, driving down the road, I guess she was in a hurry, And she ended up getting pulled over, and lo and behold, it was a female cop. Not much of a chance of getting out of this one. So she explained to the officer uh, how she was in a hurry and how she was speeding, and she basically went through a laundry list of all the things she did wrong. And the officer was in disbelief and let her go. So she came to me afterwards, and she goes, It really worked. So, you know, it's better to be truthful about yourself instead of being, playing the hypocrite, right? But hypocrisy is awful when it comes from authority. Awful. But it's even more abject when it comes from a spiritual leader. Levin, hypocrisy. What areas in our lives do we have this type of uh, behavior? And how are we going to start rooting it out? Simple example is we want to hold on to wrongs. How, you know, people, everybody's been wronged somehow by somebody. Whether family member or friend or coworker, and we want to hold on to those wrongs, but we refuse to see how we've wronged people in the past. You know, if you're, even if you're a child, everyone's wronged somebody in this room. Ecclesiastes, this is a great scripture to write down. Ecclesiastes 7: 21 through 22. I'm going to paraphrase it. Great scripture. It basically says, "Don't get bent out of shape when somebody trashes you, because don't you know you've done it to someone before." Uh, again, this is a paraphrase, but the truth is, God's word says, don't get so indignant when somebody wrongs you, because you know you've done it in your life to someone else somewhere along the line. When somebody hurts us, we want to nail them to the wall, don't we? But then when we do it, we want grace and forgiveness. Hey, I'm only human, brother. You know, give me a break. You got to, you're a Christian. You've got to forgive me, right? So we kind of have a double standard when it comes to ourselves. Verse 2. Jesus says, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. In context, any hypocrisy will be exposed in the end. Secrets don't exist in the judgment. All the little dirty secrets of men and government over the years will all come to light into the end. It will all be exposed. Now, this is great news for conspiracy buffs you got all kinds of people who, uh, maybe it's Roswell, you know, that's your thing, government cover-up, or it's uh, Jimmy Hoffa, or, you know, how many people conspired against JFK, or who shot JR, whatever it is. (laughs) Remember that? Whatever it is, you know, you got your conspiracy buffs. This is going to be great news for you in the judgment. So, verse 4, it says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. In context, fear of man, which we touched a little bit on last Sunday. You wanna please people. You don't wanna disappoint people. You don't want people not to like you. Peer pressure, spoke about many times, and also mob mentality. You know, it's a a term used, I guess, in criminology where if a a whole group of people are doing something and uh, one few people decide to commit a crime, everyone else will do it to be part of the mob because they don't want to look like the odd man out. Nobody wants to step up and say, hey, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that, right? Everybody kind of joins in on that. You see it at sports events, parades, large gatherings, and again, it's... People who normally maybe wouldn't even commit that crime, but because of everyone else is doing it, they do it. It's that fear of man again, fear to to be to stand up to be that lone person and say, "Hey, I'm not going to go the way everybody else is going." Jesus said that if you're going to have fear at all, put it where it belongs. Right? A healthy fear of God is knowing that He has the power to go beyond what any man can do to you collectively. When man kills you. Um, when man kills us, his harm stops at our death. But God has the power to cast, even after death, to cast into hell. But remember, he also has the power, and uh, he sent his son to die for our sins, so that doesn't have to be our fate. That's power. Some fear is good. I think about my wife. Uh, she talked about when she was growing up. Uh, she had some friends that turned to drugs, and she never did. She said, I never touched the drug. She goes, I was, I was afraid of my dad. (laughs) So that, in that sense, that was a good fear. As a matter of fact, she knows people over the years who actually died from uh, drug overdoses, but she never touched the drug because of fear of her father. Verse six, it says, Jesus says, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins and not one of them is forgotten before God, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God intimately is acquainted with us and everything around the universe at the same time, including the sparrows. He knows every detail of our lives and will take care of us better than any person can. I, I grieve when I see people who are addicted to relationships. They want so much to be taken care of by someone. They want so much to be loved by someone that they get involved in such abusive relationships The whole, you know, again, being a police officer for 15 years, the whole domestic violence routine, it's a feeling that you need this person, no matter how much they abuse you. Well, I got news for you. If that's you, you don't need that person. You need the Lord God. He's the one who's going to take care of you. He is intimately acquainted with all your needs. And it's not just women. It's men, too. Men don't want to admit it, but they need these relationships. They need to feel loved. But before he said to fear, and now he's saying, don't fear. Kind of sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Well, not contextually. In verse 5, he's saying not to fear man. Because if you're going to put your fear anywhere, it should be in the almighty, all-powerful God. Here he's saying that the detail that God is attentive to you and shows his love for you, we should also have, you know, in response, we should have a healthy fear or respect, awe, reverence of him, but not to be terrified. There's a distinction between fear, uh, respect and awe, but not being terrified of him. I think about my son when he, uh, you know, he knows he can only do so much, uh, you know, things that are bad, and if he crosses the line, he's gonna get spanked. So in that sense, he's good because he has a fear of his dad. But if you ever watch me interact with my son, even if I went like this real quickly, he wouldn't flinch because he's not terrified of me. There's a difference. It's a concern if, somebody, if a father has children and, and they all flinch when he puts his hand out. Kind of indicates that maybe something's going on in the home there. But it's the same thing with God. I don't, I'm not terrified of God, but I respect him. He has the power over my life. He has every breath that I take is in his hand. I have that fear of him, but I'm not terrified of him. Uh, that's a very important distinction to understand. Verse 8. He says, also, I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Now, in Matthew's gospel, it adds a little bit more. Jesus says, uh, I will confess you before the angels of heaven, my father in heaven and the angels of heaven. And the same thing, I will deny you before my father in heaven and the angels in heaven. But there's a direct correlation between your attitude towards the Lord here and in the afterlife. If you are ashamed of Christ here, don't don't expect a ticker tape parade when you step into eternity because it's not gonna happen. Jesus bore incredible humiliation, uh, contempt on the cross, but was, was not ashamed to take our sins and take the punishment that we deserved. That alone should make us proud to call him our Lord. Even our altar calls, when we do the altar calls at the end of service, your actions coming up here are a reflection of your heart The action itself, walking up here and saying something, doesn't save you. It's, you know, when you repeat those words, I always say that. If you mean it in your heart towards God, it's just between you and him at that moment. And that is what uh, saves you, that uh, willingness to repent of your sins and receive the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Verse 10, it says, "...and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven." This is an interesting portion of scripture that many people wrestle with, you know, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does it all mean? Well, the word in blasphemy in Greek is blast, means harsh, and phēmia means speech or utterance. In the New Testament, it's described, it's used to describe defaming sacred things or de- defaming the Lord himself. The big question is, how do I know if I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And Why is the Holy Spirit's reputation more valuable than the Father and the Son if they are all equally God? Well, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to answer it for you. But we know what Jesus said. He says, therefore, whatever comes out of a man, that is what defiles him, as speech reflects the heart and the attitude. Now, if we go to Mark 3, he kind of gives us a little bit more into this, a little more insight, in that, Jesus is accused of having an unclean spirit to cast out demons. So Jesus is casting out demons and they say that Jesus does that with the power of, of Satan, Beelzebub. The accusation was leveled to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was the one that Jesus was in league with to cast out those demons, right? So going back to the two questions, I'm also going to read John 15:26, John 15:26. Jesus says, but when the Helper comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom shall send, uh, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So that's the Holy Spirit's job post-Christ, when Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to his followers, to his believers. That's why we reject any signs and wonders that bring great glory to a man or a woman you know, the only way that uh, signs and wonders are supposed to be done are really to glorify or testify of Christ. You can't do something goofy and then blame it on the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work like that. So if the Holy Spirit's job is to testify of Christ and lead mankind to him, then to assassinate his character and blaspheme him would be to reject the message of salvation, thereby inflicting damnation upon yourself. So if you are here today and you were drawn by the Holy Spirit, then don't worry, you haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know if this has happened with you, but as a new believer, I would read that scripture. Sometimes you read scriptures and you don't understand them because it takes you a while for the Lord to grow that knowledge inside of you and, and to teach you. But uh, I read about blaspheming. first thing I thought about when I read about he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden I'm starting to remember, okay, did I ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Wait a minute, I don't even know how to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so you start thinking about, does this mean I can't save, can't be saved because I might have done it by accident? But that's not. If you're really that worried about it, you haven't done it. It's not that the Holy Spirit's reputation is better than the father and sons and you you won't be uh, forgiven because of besmirching it, but it's that if you reject the Holy Spirit's drawing you to him, you automatically default back into unforgiveness for your sins because you rejected the only force that can lead you to salvation. To stand before God on your own righteousness is a very scary place to be. Isaiah 64, 6 says this but we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags we all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away you can't stand before god i don't care i know some really great christians and they won't stand before god on their own you need the covering of jesus christ because all it takes is one sin and you've, you've missed the mark. You've sinned. You've broken the perfect standard that God sets. And Jesus takes those sins, and he, he puts the links back in the chain to make our, our relationship with God strong again. Verse 11. It says, Now when they bring you up to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So the Holy Spirit has another job function here. In times of persecution, God's message will go forth to the persecuting authorities to either convict them and bring them to repentance or to solidify them in their state. Now, when we go through the Gospels, some of the women that followed Jesus or some of the people that followed Jesus were notable people in society. So some of those important people in society were actually brought to repentance through Jesus Christ. So... Uh, Isaiah 55, let I'll just flip over to Isaiah 55. This is going to explain how, uh, how God's word is sent forth, right? And it does what it's supposed to do, and it doesn't come back void or empty. It achieves its purpose. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, after Jesus was martyred, Stephen was the first one after that that's recorded in scripture. He testified to the religious leaders, starting back in Jewish history and all the way up to the Messiah. And they were enraged, and they, threw, they killed him. They stoned him to death. And we might look at that and say, what did it accomplish? But if you look later on the scripture, Acts 6-7 says that many of the priests came to faith. faith. Now, remember, these priests were part of the Sanhedrin. They were part of the ruling class, the, the uh, theocracy, so to speak, right? And uh, they came to faith. Paul's conversion in Act chapter nine. Well, of course, it was Jesus Christ that that appeared to him, but was it possible that the fruit of spirit of Stephen's testimony before he died did something in their hearts to to start working on them, as Isaiah fifty five speaks about? A lot of times we talk to people and we think we're getting nowhere. And then we find out later that maybe years later that somebody else, a coworker or they moved out of state and they call you up and say, Hey, I got saved. And you're like, Is this a joke? But somebody else closed the deal, so to speak. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. You know, just keep planting those seeds. Keep planting the word. So this verse has an application also for God to reach anyone through us. It started with you're going to be brought to the authorities, the magistrates, the synagogues. And, you know, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say in that very hour. But it also applies to us personally in everyday life. Uh, My mother... By her own admission, I'm not saying this, by her own admission, she said she has a terrible memory. She says, I'm losing my memory. She takes that ginkgo biloba and all this kind of stuff to try to make her memory better, but it doesn't work. But she, she went to Israel some time back, and uh, she went to an Israel trip. And, you know, she was out of her element. Uh, she was in, in a foreign place, and she doesn't know, the, you know, she doesn't have a great memorization for scriptures. But she ended up meeting up uh, during the course of her trip with a rabbi, and they started discussing about spiritual things and the Messiah. And my mom was actually going toe to toe with the rabbi. So she tells me the story and there was other people there who saw it also. Her comment to me was, I don't have any idea what I said. The Holy Spirit took over for me. <laughs> and, and this rabbi at the end, was a, he appreciated her insight. He actually enjoyed talking to her. So again, I don't, nobody knows what she said except the Holy Spirit, I guess. <laughs> But the next thing here, Jesus transitions now. He's going to switch gears. Well, although he never really switches gears because everything that Jesus says has one main theme. You know, we may look at it as a different subject, but it's really not. So Jesus transitions over now to the parable of the rich fool. Something that I've referenced a lot previously, but now we're going to take it apart a little bit more. Verse 13. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It's kind of funny how it comes out in the English, you know. Man, who made me an arbiter over you? Kind of sounds a little rude. Uh, Remember the uh, miracle at Cana when his mother Mary said they ran out of wine. He goes, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come. He wasn't being rude. It's just the way the King James and the New King James are more of a closer translation, a closer literal translation. So even the quirky language arts of the day come out in the English that we don't get. So these are good translations. I really like them. But the real point here is that with Jesus' public appearances, sometimes people would try to divert him off of the things of God, off of the subject. Well, Jesus is great. He could do anything. Hey, why don't you tell my brother to give me some of that money, you know? Because he, he's holding it, he's hoarding it for himself. Uh, but Jesus always reeled them back in to God's message, and in many times it was done with a parable. Now that's a good lead to take. No matter where people try to take our conversations, as Christians, as followers of God, as those of us carrying the, the you know the gospel, the, the most precious thing to mankind, we need to always focus back on the things of God. That is our job as a Christian. I was. Uh, it was late last night and uh, I was on duty and one of the officers desired to talk to me and just to share his heart about some things that are going on in his family. And you know what? It, it always goes back to the Bible. And he had no problem with it because there's wisdom in the Bible. He's like, oh, I love talking to you, Joe. It ain't me. It's the scripture. You know what I'm saying? I'm just a conduit. So our job as Christians should always bring people back to the word of God. But covetousness, well, we could spend a whole service on covetousness, couldn't we? Desiring something that's not yours. That keeping up with the Joneses trap. I've seen people do it with homes. You know, it's just, it's just a competition. You know, well, this, this person or, the, the, you know, my brother is successful and look at his house. I, I desire to get a house like his. Or, um, uh, you know, everyone on the block has a new SUV. You know, that new whatever. I've got to get one of those. I've actually, I knew a Christian couple that everyone on the block had a pool. So they wanted to get a pool. Me, I would just go in somebody else's pool, you know. <laughs> It's a lot cheaper. Just be friends with your neighbors and let them go and you can go in the pool. But, you know, and it gets really bad when covetous turns into a spousal thing. You know, you you desire that person's husband or you desire that person's wife. Uh, Even ministry. People cover sometimes church leadership until they come on this side of the fence and find out all the responsibilities. But, uh, you know, it's just covetous covers a lot of areas here. Verse 16 says, so then he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many good years, uh, goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So this man, the rich man, had an abundance of agricultural products, but you can substitute anything for these, these uh, items. He's so wealthy and has such an abundance that he's got to pull down his old barns because they're just bursting at the seams and he's got to build bigger ones and store more stuff in there. Right. But in verse nine, he, or verse 19, excuse me, he gets to sit back and enjoy his riches for many years and he relies on them. You know, what I noticed in this was there's a lot of eyes, I, this, I, that my, 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 Right. My stuff. I'm self-made. My possessions. My hurt. My point of view. My feelings. Doesn't it sound like um, when you watch kids? My toy. Mine. Mine. That's their favorite word. We live in a society of the my good over the good of all. You look at the. Uh, that's why you know the ACLU is very active in this country because there's a lot of people who don't want to look at the good of all. They just want to look at their individual problems. There was a guy in California who used his daughter as a pawn because he didn't like the Pledge of Allegiance in the school, right? His daughter didn't have a problem with the Pledge of Allegiance, but he erroneously filed a petition in the court saying she was offended by the Pledge of Allegiance and wanted it to be removed from the school. And uh, it was all about him. He didn't even go to the school and his daughter didn't mind it, right? But it was it was all about his good, his want over the good of the rest of the country. So this man in the story could only think about himself and his stuff. Verse 20. He says, but God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Even Solomon complained in Ecclesiastes, I did all this stuff. I I made all these things. I I built an empire. And he he was having trouble in his his thoughts. And And he said in Ecclesiastes, what if the next guy that I leave it to is a fool? What if he squanders it? What if, what if, what if? Who cares when you die? You know what I'm saying? He was concerned if the guy after him would take care of all his stuff the way he took care of it. Honestly, I really don't care because when the Lord takes me home, I'm not going to be worried about anything that I left behind. So, anyway, except of course, people that I love. So, I mean, stuff, you know. I have to get that straight. But you know, James. Uh, I just want to turn also to James 4. He kind of uh, talks about that too. James 4:13. James 4:13 through 17. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. How foolish for any of us to assume or take for granted that we have another day. We need to break that. It's really a neurological cycle. I actually looked up neurology. I'm very fascinated with the human body. But there's a neurological adaptation that says that if you're introduced, your body is introduced to a new stimulus, after a certain period of time passes, you forget about that stimulus and your body focuses on other stimuli. Case in point, how many people right now feel the floor pushing up on your feet? Probably none of you until I said it, right? For the last, I don't know, 25 minutes you've been sitting here, your feet have been on the floor. But what neurological adaptation says is that, again, the stimulus is the floor. But over time, you're paying attention to me, And you're not thinking about the floor anymore your mind just kind of forgets about that your feet are on the floor well um it's the same thing with the way we deal with our life our minds have adapted to i've always existed therefore i will always continue to exist that's the way we live our lives like we have another day and the older we get we get more set in that way i don't ever think about dying i just think that i'm going to go to bed tonight i'm going to wake up and eat breakfast and start another day and this is just going to go on forever But eventually, I'm either going to die or the Lord's going to come back for me, right? So, um, you know, this is the way we think. But God answers and says, oh, foolish ones, your life is but a vapor. Break that foolish cycle of thought. If you aren't rich in your hearts or minds towards God, then you truly are foolish. This story is a tragedy of a man who's unconcerned with God. But what's more amazing is the sin at the center of it. It's self-centeredness. I've spoken more about the uh, dangers of self-centeredness, but it's hard for people to break because our society ingrains so much of it. Somebody told me, uh, was it yesterday, that there's a statistic out that says 90, it's like 95% of the people in the world have never used a telephone. And we might think, that's ridiculous because we all have camera phones and we take pictures of our friends and we can do all kinds of things. Gotta, you know. But 95% of the world has never touched a telephone. How can that be? Because... We are so used to thinking that everyone's like us, technology, air conditioning, uh, you know, a home, cars. And, and it's just not the case with the rest of the world. So our society's attitude kind of a lot of times is to heck with everyone else. It's all about me. Right. If you could characterize our society, even taking an organization, even like a church, if, uh, If even half the people demanded that the church cater to every one of their needs, I want the worship team to be like this. I want the bulletin to look like this. I want, I want, I want. The the organization could never stand. It would fold, right? So self-centeredness. The last point, too, is that nobody wants to think about eternity, but the Bible tells us that it's ingrained in our hearts. Another great scripture from Ecclesiastes. People are afraid to read Ecclesiastes because it seems kind of depressing, but really it's a good book. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has ingrained eternity into our hearts, right? But we try to kind of push it away, and we don't want to think about it. And some people erroneously try to fill it, that void, all right, that eternal void that we have that can only be filled by God with stuff, relationships, with uh, cars, with homes, with success, with looks, with... I mean, the, the, the list is incredible, we just try to shut out that, that thing that God has put in our heart. We try to push it aside. You know, I got to tell you, eternity kind of—it's weird. I, I don't worry about dying, but I guess when I think about eternity, it kind of weirds me out a little bit. Like, okay, there's no time in heaven, so like, and there's no sleeping. So like, if God says you meet me here at nine o'clock in the morning, <laughs> there is no nine o'clock in the morning. So then when I start thinking about the absence of time and eternity, and I, you know, I don't sleep and I can't sing very well. I mean, how do I worship him? You know, whatever. (laughs) Come on, don't tell me I'm the only one who thinks these weird things. (laughs) But what does give me comfort, okay, bringing it back in, what does give me comfort is to know that God is in control and he knows far better than I do. So to wrap it up, The disciples were growing in popularity. Let's go back to the beginning. The disciples were growing in popularity. Why? Because they rode Jesus' coattails. Obviously, Jesus could handle it because he was God. But they were humans. They were men. And they probably struggled with some of that popularity. But with the same speed that they were elevated into fame, right? With that same speed, they would equally plummet into ostracization and persecution and temptation to go back into the old dead religious system for safety's sake, right? So fear needed to be on God and not man because that would stabilize them in the coming years when God called them to start the early church. Even as a pastor, if I'm so elated by your compliments after service, hey, that was good service, hey, Joe, I really like that point, and I'm like, oh, this is great. If I'm so elated by your comments and your compliments, right, then I will be equally crushed when you criticize me. And what that would display is that would display emotional instability. And that's not what you want out of a pastor. You got to take everything in stride. Give God the compliments and take the criticism in stride. But maybe you can take something out of it that you could change, right? I'm open to suggestions. But when you grow in popularity spiritually and people go to you for answers, one of two bad things can happen. And we've seen this here. One is you feed off the attention and pretend to be more spiritual than you are. Obviously, by some of my personal stories, you know that I don't pretend to be more spiritual than I am. But that was the case with the Pharisees. The Pharisees comes from the Hebrew word "farats," which means to separate or divide. It was an attitude of superiority, separate from the masses. Or the other thing that can happen is you're now in the limelight, and you like the limelight, and you're loved by people, and you enjoy that, and you stop presenting the true gospel for fear of man. I got to tell you, I've seen. <laughs> I get frustrated when I watch Larry King uh, interview evangelicals, these, you know, these superstars that we all know, big names. And he asked them, He always do, does this to people. You know, he says, well, do you believe that Jesus is the only way? Well, what do you think of hell? And some of these guys, they start to panic because they have big followings. And they've made friends with a lot of people over the world, right? And they start to panic because if they say the truth, people might call them up and say, hey, what are you doing? That's not inclusive. That's not tolerant. I've got news for these people. If you're going to go on Larry King, I'll tell you what he's going to answer. And if you're afraid to answer it, don't go on Larry King. It's that simple. But, you know, Jesus says this, and I would say this to those men. Uh, the Ephesian church did a lot of good things. In Revelation 2, Jesus tells, he lauds the Ephesians for the great things that he's done. But he says, this I have against you, that you left your first love. You know, doing good works and, and building churches and, and uh, you know, you're doing all this kind of stuff, but if you lost your first love, if you've forgotten about Jesus Christ, then what is it? It's like a counterfeit money. You pass counterfeit money and it does good. It buys groceries and then it goes to somebody else and they buy something. But it's still a counterfeit, see? So uh, seeing what, and I've got to tell you, seeing what happened in England recently with the terror plot to kill the British and the Americans, it's only a matter of time before one of these nutcases gets successful and somebody gets hurt. Like it or not, we live in an era of terror and fear. But the only way to have peace and comfort in these times is to put fear where it belongs, and that's in the Lord. Let's pray. You lost your first love. If you forgot,